Hi, it's Dr. Shep. I know that you might have been waiting for a while for a new episode, and I just wanted to touch base and let you know that everything is still moving forward. As is true for many of us, life sometimes makes schedules more difficult to manage, and the COVID-19 virus has made that all the more difficult. So thank you for your patience, and we look forward to getting more episodes to you as soon as we are able and as often as we are able. Be well, everyone. tuning in to Manage the Moment, Conversations in Performance Psychology. I'm Dr. Sari Shepard. I'll just play whatever comes to me right now. But if I think about it too hard, or when I'm just playing in a band even, that's usually when I get in trouble. It's not as good as when I feel like I can totally let go and, and try and hear what I think the music is being given to me. Alicia Previn has lived the most interesting life She began playing the violin when she was about seven years old and was classically trained at the Royal Academy of Music in London. She grew to be an accomplished instrumentalist, having been, as she puts it, born into music. If her last name sounds familiar, it's because she shares it with her late father, Andre Previn, Academy Award winner and composer who was tremendously influential in film and music for the better part of eight decades. But Alicia found her own path. Granted, it took some unusual turns through the experience of living in a cult environment as a teen, but later weaved her way in through multiple roles in music as an instrumentalist, singer, composer, and teacher. And I enjoyed learning from Alicia during our conversation, and I hope that you will as well. Hi, Alicia. Thanks so much for joining me this evening. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I know. It's, it's going to be fun. I, I'm really looking forward to hearing about your life and your career, because it, it's been quite a road thus far, and you've done so many things already to date in your career and live such an interesting life. So I'm looking forward just to kind of delving into some of your experience. Thank you. Well, I hope it helps your audience. And, you know, I'm I'm new to your podcast, but I know how popular you are and how, how well received you are. So I'm excited to jump in. Oh, well, thank you for that. Well, I'm excited to jump in as well. Um, I, I would love to hear a little bit about how you developed your love for music, because I know we'll talk about the, the various ways that's shown up in your life and how you've displayed that that love. But how did you develop your love for music? Oh, my gosh. I think I developed it in the womb. I mean, <laughs> I, I came from a family of musicians. Uh, people have heard of my dad, of course, but my mom was also a jazz singer. And, you know, now that I've had a child, I know that I played a lot of music that I thought it was important for him to know that was pre-existent from him. And then when he was a teenager and he started listening to that music, he knew all those songs. So I just, I just know that I was born into that. And although sometimes it skips a generation, and I know people that are incredibly talented and nobody else in their family plays, but um, I just, always sang my mom's songs. I went to her rehearsals. She was a jazz singer and I loved all of that and listened to mostly jazz growing up and uh, loved that music. Now I'm starting in the last couple of years to be folded into jazz bands, which is something that's like a lifetime of learning. It's so Mm -hmm. lofty. It's so amazing. It has that incredible structure and yet freedom at the same time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because all my parents did that, you know, I've talked to them. I've, I've been involved in that. But then, you know, like everyone else in my family, I was given a piano lessons when I was six years old. And 
I got so far and then I, my teacher scribbled out the fingering numbers. And so mm. it's funny because I've been a teacher now and I do anything to make it fun and interesting for the student, whether they're children or adults. If they're still using a crutch of fingering or something, so what? You know, it's like you're not going to be wearing diapers in college. It, I, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever helps. But then after a year, I have this funny idea. I'm seven years old and I want to play the violin. Nobody else in my family played it. And my thought was, and it's almost like prophetic, I think now, because it, it cracks me up. I thought, well, I want to play the violin because it's, you can carry it around. And in those days, you couldn't really, they didn't really have many electric pianos you could carry around. Right. And because you can play all kinds of music. Now, that's astounding because the most common question I get asked, besides can you play Devil Went Down to Georgia, is... <laughs> Devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. Is, do you play country or classical? And yes, I was classically trained by some of the greatest musicians, teachers in the world. But I moved away from classical as a teenager because it, it for various reasons. But I've really felt like I've tried to break every mold in violin and play every kind of music that I love or I'm interested in or trying. Um, most people still act like they don't know what to do with me. You're a violin. Well, mm -hmm. stop trying to think that violins only play certain kinds of music. It's just an instrument that I know how to play and I'm familiar with, but I can play horn parts. I've played in Led Zeppelin cover bands. I've played in reggae bands, uh, you know, has nothing to do with it. So I just always loved music and I always loved playing with people. And I remember when I started moving away from just following music on a page and making my own music, I met a guy who played acoustic guitar. So I used to jam with him. And then one day, I remember he had a friend that joined us that played the bass. Well, I thought I'd gone to heaven. Having the bottom covered like a bass player, it just, that all that was the beginning of me going into music as a career and, and really pursuing it. Just that kind of playing with others, you know, and playing together. And I, I'm wondering if, if jazz helped you to do that, your background in jazz as a child, because it is so different in its structure. You know, it's not the same, uh, it's not the same thing on the two and the four. And it's not, you're not like you're doing the same rock beat every single time. And I mean, there's so much variation yes. um, to it and you, ha you have to interpret it um, in a way that you don't other genres. I, I wonder if that had an influence on your desire to play different kinds of music and just have that freedom. It might've been. My sister had a friend who, when he saw me moving away from just wanting to play classical, he gave me a tape that had Joe Venuti and Stefan Grappelli and kind of the, the beginnings of jazz violin. And, you know, and then there was Hot Rats, Frank Zappa, and, you know, then different people that I started to discover. But one thing I thought was so amazing is when I started working with my stepdad, Mondell Lowe, he's one of the great guitars of jazz. I mean, literally in the world. He, he left us in December of 2017, mm. but he started to wanted to do an album with me and he started teaching me some songs and had me learn them and then we'd play them together. And I remember the first time he was older and I got to be his roadie. So I would help pack up mm. all his gear, take him to the gig, unpack it, wait through, through the gig because my mom really got to the point where she didn't want to stay the whole night, help him pack up and then take him home. And then one day my mom said, you know, you might want to bring your violin along. And I'm like, 
why? <laughs> well, you might want to sit in and my heart just started pounding. I was like, mm. what? Are you kidding? So I put my violin in the car and I drive dad to the gig and then we get there and I'm like, gee, dad, you know, do you want me to bring my violin in? And he's so cool. He's like, well, yeah, you might as well. But when we started working on the album, I'm sitting there saying, well, you know, I've got this thing about John Coltrane changes that I'm practicing with and what are these scales and what are they? And he'd say, look, you learn the melody and you keep that in your head the whole time you're improvising and all you do is play around with the melody now that blew my mind i'm thinking mm. okay that's all right for you who've played for your whole life played jazz and understand whole tones and all these different kinds of aspects of music you've written you've taught film scoring you've played orchestra stuff but um i understand it more and more all the time because you take the melody and you you work with it. You you play it back upside down or backwards or you know scales around it or whatever. But you constantly have to have that in your head. And the more you understand everything, the more you can go places with that. And it, to me, it's just a lifetime of learning. I, I don't think I would ever say I. I don't know how anybody could say they mastered jazz, but some people are incredibly gifted, and I'm just in awe that I get to try. And I get to do it. I'm in about two or three jazz bands, and and we we're, we're about to play a new gig in Carlsbad at a pretty nice place. So we'll see. Well, that's really cool. I I think it's neat how you have that lifelong learning attitude about it. But I can hear it. I mean, I can hear the passion for just being able to develop your craft, which is different than what you might hear from someone who's classically trained and then stays with um, the classical music and perhaps refines their skill but doesn't include the same the same depth of wanting to learn and I'm not trying to knock classical violinists because of course you have different pieces and then you can interpret the difficult pieces differently but you're you're talking about delving into music as an entity not just an instrument exactly and and I got to go uh, over to Japan uh, a couple of years ago and we were taken to the university and I went up into this room where they're they had interesting names for these rooms, but there were students that were studying 60s music. So I went in and I, so we started playing Cream and we started playing all these cool 60s music. And they were looking at me like, you're a violinist and you play this? And we had so much fun. And then they took me downstairs to the classical section where in the hallways, these kids were practicing their Tchaikovsky or practicing whatever they were doing. And I went over to this young Japanese guy and I was introduced to him and we were chatting for a minute. And I said, so do you ever play without the music? And he looked at me with these bug eyes, like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, you should try it. Just play from your heart. Just don't look at the music. And he, I just I could have been talking any language that he didn't understand. But it, I think he, something inside him, maybe he'd try it. I don't know. But I do like that. I do like trying to get kids. I've this one kid and he's improved a lot since I've been teaching him. And I thought, well, okay, I'll bring some Christmas music around Christmas. So I brought typical well-known Christmas songs and one of them he knew but I had printed it from the internet and I for I didn't realize it was two pages so I brought the one page and I was really thrilled that we were playing along and he just followed me even though it went off the music he knew wow. what it was supposed to and he did pretty well he did really well and I yeah I know he has a good ear you know, he, he doesn't work very hard at his practicing, but <laughs> he uh -huh. has a good ear. So, and I taught, he had to do a performance of uh, Dust in the Wind. So I wrote it all out for him 
and I spent a lot of time teaching him the difficult passages. And, you know, I think he did pretty well. I didn't get to be there, but I, but his mom was thrilled anyway. Well, you've, you've taught a number of people and you've played with so many people. What would you say your opinion is on how much of one's ear is genetic and how much of it is, is learned or developed? Ah, well, I know as a kid, I had perfect pitch. I remember Mm -hmm. being playing outside in the front yard and my mom hitting a note on the piano inside and I would tell her what it was. Then later on, I think maybe you have to practice that. I don't know. I'm not an expert on that, but I know I have relative pitch. Um, I can take my violin and tune it and it's usually perfect because Mm. all these years of doing it. But um, I did have a student who had no ear. I mean, big girl, her hands were about twice as big as I mine and when she first started she couldn't tell an attitude note from a in tune note but after a while she got better at it and she could hear mm-hmm. so i think if you're a violinist it, i mean it's so funny i have tried a lot of electric violins and there was one particular kind i i bought i ended up selling it because i didn't like the sound but it had these things he called phantom frets and what's so funny is i'm used to playing guitars and basses where the frets are there and you play in between the frets right mm-hmm. well what was weird about this is these frets, you were supposed to put your finger on them. And it goes against everything, you know, especially in the kind of classical world that would be horrific. Oh my God, frets. So I remember asking him, you know, so tell me, why did you do that? He said, have you ever played in a really loud band? And I went, uh, yeah, just about every band I've ever played in has been too loud. And as soon as I could hear myself, they told me I was too loud. He said, well, <laughs> you know you're you're right because you can look down at your fingers and know that you're right. And I said, okay, oh. <laughs> I get, I'll give you that. But of course, you know, with a classical conductor, composer, father, I mean, the whole, just he told me that the whole, even the idea of an electric violin was repulsive to him. <laughs> so it wasn't like he accepted what I did really at all. He loved my melodies that I wrote. Um, and he said he was going to write a real arrangement. And that never happened, unfortunately. But, oh. you know, busy man. But... I keep pressing on. I have the new album written and I'm hoping to oh, great. get it out soon. I'm waiting to find somebody to mix it for me. And um, I've been writing some themes for TV shows and that's really been fun, but I digress. kind of. No, well, no, not at all. You're not digressing <laughs> at all. It's all very interesting. I'm, I'm interested to hear about your process when you compose, because of course it's really different than interpreting music that's already been written. But is, is, your process one where it's just kind of fluid and it, and it happens continuously? Do you sit and, um, and you know, try to connect with yourself or with your idea of, of what you're having for the music? How, what's your process like when you compose? Well, okay. There's a few different ones I have to say over the years because I've been writing since I was in my teens or 20s. Okay. Um, there have been some, you know, in the beginning I had to write it on violin. So mm-hmm. somewhat limiting. I mean, I came out with some great melodies, but then I always had to go and find somebody to help me with the chords. No, can you play the major of that? No minor, no. And so that was difficult. But eventually I taught myself enough guitar. And what's funny about not really being a trained guitarist, but being able to play guitar, and, and my son has told me this, is that um, a lot of people who write songs on guitar, they write the chords that go along with the melody. But because I'm not a trained guitarist, I'll write chords and sometimes I'll learn a new chord and I'll just make a song out of it but mm-hmm. my melodies are go counter to that so that it he says it he suggested to me that makes it more interesting rather than mm-hmm. just following along with the chords but sometimes I'll just make some chords sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night I wrote a song recently where I woke up 
with this phrase in my head. Um, in, in the midst of, let's see, in the, in the, I think it was in the midst of the wall, they heard the call or something. I don't know. And I, I thought, okay. You know, so I went up, went to the bathroom, came back, laid down, and it kept going around and around. I said, okay, flip on the light, get my pad out. And what I do tend to do is I'll, if I have lyrics coming, I'll just keep going and I'm hearing the next line or the next words and I just trust it and I just keep writing until I can't write anymore or I think, okay, I need a bridge or, you know, I'll just see. Sometimes I get it all out and, it, and it's complete. I have verses that are have the similar rhythm and then a chorus or whatever. So mm -hmm. sometimes it does all flow out like that. Um, and then there have been other times where I've, I went away to Arizona for a month just to go to the monuments and I took my little baby tortoise with me and I took my guitar and I tried some different tunings and I wrote some songs and then I put the lyrics on top of that. So there's different times. And then there've been times when I've had a melody um, and it was kind of only half of something. And then a month or so later, this other melody came to me. A lot of times I wake up with it and they fit together and made a song. It was interesting. Or I Again, I was away somewhere in this place in the south of France. I got the opportunity to go to this beautiful place, woke up in the middle of the night, four in the morning, find a quiet place and get my phone recorder out. And I sing these two little melodies. And now it's like one of my favorite songs. It's about the Mediterranean, which is where I was. And I named it after the place. And my son helped me put waves in it and all these vocals. And, you know, it, it, it sounds like when you close your eyes and listen to the song, you actually feel like you're somewhere in the Mediterranean. So... There's lots of different ways that it happens. It's so interesting to hear about because it, it is like speaking another language. You know, you, you talk about it because it's internal to you and, and um, so much of it is natural. But of course, someone who doesn't play music or doesn't have compositions come to them, um, yeah. you know, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't understand that. But um, you've had different influences in your life. And I'm actually wondering how that impacted your own, your own process of, of composition because you had the influence of your mom, Betty Bennett, and listening to her and, and the jazz background. But then you had kind of a contrary or a contrast influence in your dad, the famed composer and, and conductor, Andre Previn, who was more of a perfectionist. Yes. Um, and so how, how did you navigate your way through the different musical influences in your life to find your own style and, and your own vibe? You know, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I didn't grow up around my dad. I saw him on weekends from the time I was about five is what I understand. You know, you don't remember a whole lot before you're three. Sure. Uh, I understand I didn't really see him, but then I saw him on weekends. So I wasn't involved so much. Sometimes I'll be watching, in the old days, I'd be watching an old movie and I, I might notice the music. And then at the end, I see the credits and I realize my dad wrote it, but I didn't oh. even know. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff he wrote kind of before I was born or when I was very young that I, I may still to this day not be that familiar with. And then there's the stuff he did for Oscars, but that was taking other people's music and putting it onto a movie, which is a certain skill you get an Oscar for. Um, but he's written violin concertos, he's written operas now, and, and all this other stuff. So I really, honestly, I didn't like his composing. 
And I think it's because my analysis of it is um, he had a very difficult childhood where he grew up as a child prodigy, played piano. And instead of a child receiving the kind of love and hugs and that kind of affection that, that we need, it was always play for us, Andre, play for us, Andre. So I think he put his love and affection into look what I can do, you know, kind of thing. And so I always found his melodies were, oh, here's a beautiful melody he had, but then he purposely twisted it to sound Aaron Copeland. <laughs> the sound modern and, and, and kind of ugly in a sense. And, and just, and I, all, I described it once to this man that wrote a book about famous people's kids and I got to be in it. And I said, I feel like it's like he has a chain on his heart where he can't, bust it out and just love and be free to write yeah. whatever he, it, it, it always it's like he has that as the beginning of what he writes but then his mind gets in the way and you see that's one thing with my violin playing that if I think too much about it if I'm improvising which is my favorite of all is pure improvisation like just if you're if you want that I'll just play whatever comes to me right now but if I think about it too hard or when I'm just playing in a band even that's usually when I get in trouble. It's not as good as when I feel like I can totally let go and, and try and hear what I think the music is being given to me. You know, it's funny because you, you mentioned that uh, people who don't have that in them. And I love the fact that one of my favorite classical pieces of all is Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. And, you know, when he first performed that way, way, way a long time ago, probably a hundred or more years ago, uh, they booed, they stomped, they oh. threw things, they hated it. And I learned recently that what he said was he didn't compose it, it came through him. Mm. And it makes so much sense to me because it's so, how could anybody have come up with that? I mean, yeah. if you know the piece, it's unbelievable. My son showed me that they have a, actually a thing on YouTube where there's a, um, a color graph representing each instrument in the orchestra that shows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. oh. um, it, it's almost as fantastic as listening to the piece. It just, you look at it and it, it really illustrates that it's, you know, I know that it, Fantasia too, obviously a big part of it was in Fantasia, but it doesn't matter. It's just, it definitely is so, well, it's, um, it expresses something that, you know, can't be thought i just feel like it's yeah. thoughts don't come into it as much as i mean he obviously had to write it down so he had to understand each instrument mm -hmm. and how to write it but it must have been quite a process if he says it came through him and he just had to get it down on paper and that's how i feel like a lot of the composing i've done has been you know where i just feel i've got to do this i've like i've got to turn on the light and write all this and that that phrase that i had where i flipped on the light and i stayed up I've never written anything like it. Ha it talks about stampedes and blood and people being captured. And it was something very different than the normal. I don't write love songs necessarily. I write songs about actual real problems that people have that we all deal with and maybe a way to help yourself get through it. But uh, this, it, it definitely is something that takes over. I think, and then you just have to trust it. And you can go back and edit it too and make it better. I've done that too. I've, I've worked on lyrics 
you know, I don't always just trust everything that comes out, but Mm -hmm. it's mostly there. And that trust you developed over time as you, as you got to know yourself as a musician, Would, would that be fair to say? I think so. And, you know, the other thing is the album I put out, uh, last year or at the end of the year before, uh, there are songs I wrote while I was on tour with bands for years and my friends that were either in bands or I played in their band or whatever, um, you know, I, I have a chance at a, some studio time and they would come in and whereas a lot of people's demos are just an acoustic guitar and someone singing, I have horns and guitar and bass and drums and, and all kinds of stuff, you know, singing. Mm-hmm. And I had these for years. I never did anything with them. You know, they were never put out. And I remember my son saying, how did these songs do, Mom? I said, no one's ever heard them. So a couple of years ago, we decided to call it Rare Tracks, and I put out an album, and um, we just mastered them. Because, you know, a lot of people will say that demos have a certain magic, you know, that you can never recreate. And if you try to, it ends up kind of sounding dead. So that's what we did. We just mastered them, and I have them out. And it's funny to hear them, but I, I... I know those songs are still good today. I mean, they could be redone, but I feel like I'd need to have a band. And that's the one thing with all the the moving around and things that I've done that's been the hardest is to have a band of people that I've, I've played with people that love my music, but they're busy making money playing in bigger things, you know? So Mm. that's always the thing. The best thing you can do when you're a, a songwriter is to have a band available to, represent that you know they just immediately play the sound that you are hearing in your head yeah yeah that that kind of support i'm sure is invaluable yeah i know what i'd like to have so i've been able to recreate it i've done my original songs now since i put the album out i think i've done it three or four times uh with people and i've had a bass player write out all the charts for me i mean it's just been amazing it's been great um but you know hopefully this year I'll be doing that more. But then the other thing is nowadays, so many bands are doing covers. It's kind of like the movie industry. They just keep doing the same remakes. Right. (laughs) Um, There's definitely room for original music, but um, you have to kind of get your foot in the door first, it seems, with covers. So, or have somebody else do your songs. I've always admired Carole King. I always thought that she had the best of all worlds because mm. she had so many artists have number ones with her songs. And then every couple of years, she'd take her own band out and do them the way she wanted. That to me as a singer songwriter, that seems like the ultimate way to do it. Yes. What, what a great combination that would be. Absolutely. Well, you, you not only have the talent on instrument, you also have vocal talent as well because you, you joined the London Symphony Orchestra when you were in high school. <laughs> yeah. The chorus <laughs> that was an amateur chorus, but it was super fun. I mean, Uh, I traveled up on train from where I went to school, which was down in the Sussex area to London to the rehearsals. And, you know, there were people doing their knitting. I mean, it was just a, it was what they called an amateur course, but it was huge. And we did very difficult pieces. I wish I could have done Balthazar's Feast, but um, I graduated and I wasn't able to, but I did do um, Beethoven's Ninth, which I ended up singing in Royal Albert Hall with my dad conducting. (laughs) Um, That was that what was, was that like? <laughs> that was unbelievable. I mean, I loved the rehearsals. And, you know, if you know Beethoven's Night, there's, it's the last movement where the chorus stands up and sings. So mm-hmm. you have to sit through the whole. And it's like, I remember looking at my dad and, and it's almost like I could see storm clouds over his head during the whole mm. 
first movements and then we got up and sing to sing and it was like the roof came off it just mm. it was fantastic uh, oh, wow. i wish i could have done more of it but i do love to sing and i've i've even in school the boys never wanted to sing when you start out as a little kid everyone sings unison and then you start doing boys and girls and then you start doing parts but the boys would never sing so i i developed as you can hear kind of a lower voice i i kind of lost my soprano edge because i always sang lower to oh. make up for the people that were too shy to sing <laughs> and um, as you get older i think your voice does go lower i noticed with yeah. my mom she was more soprano when she was younger and now had to change the key of some of her songs as she got older. I think your voice does drop as, as you get older, but you've been a lead singer, so you you certainly have a trained voice, um, and you've you've lended it to a, a number of different genres of music, as you mentioned in a number of them, but also you've played punk. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was in a, a, an interesting band called Tim Bright Spikes that was uh, led by two guys that had been in punk bands and a couple of others, but uh, it was the way we described it, it was uh, punk meets classical and jazz. Mm. So it was probably the most creative band I was ever in. And I wasn't really the lead singer, but I got to sing alongside with the lead singer. And the only reason why I didn't do lead is because he really didn't want me to. Oh. Uh, the leader of the band did, but he didn't. And then later on, he asked me to join a prog rock band, like a kraut rock prog rock band that he uh, led. And he'd had a girl, young girl playing violin and singing. And he told me she was not good at violin at all. Um, she got by and we went on a, we did an album and we did a U.S. tour and it was fantastic. I mean, it was a lot of work because we also backed the Hawkwind guy, um, Nick Turner, if you know who that is, if you're familiar with who Hawkwind was, is an older band from the 60s and they broke off into two factions and Nick Turner was, you know, kind of the psychedelic prog rock guy and so we traveled around as two bands so i would open i'd be the i was a lead singer violin in the, in our band called Hedersleben, and then i would run back i like to do this because it was just fun and i had a long blonde wig because i had my hair all chopped <laughs> off because being the lead singer it was a lot of work and i danced around and move around a lot and play so i you know i'd get hot so it was great to have really short hair and i'd just go and towel it off and i'd put this big long blonde wig and a little dress mm -hmm. and then i'd play the moog synthesizer and do the backup vocals and then i also played recorder and i played percussion and i played a violin solo and so oh it was a lot of work but it was really fun so um but yeah that was different singing prog rock was a little different and i studied it a little bit by saying like play me some of the classic female singers of prog rock bands and uh, like Amandul and some of these ones from Germany. And it was pretty interesting, um, interesting project to do. I liked the album. I've been listening, I hadn't listened to it for a long time and recently I've been listening to some of it. And one of the, one of the songs, Rarified Air, some of the songs I wrote the lyrics and one I wrote the lyrics and some melody. And it was actually used in a kind of a B movie, but it was a movie called, um, Diamond Cartel, and I guess it was the last movie that Peter O'Toole was in, which I still haven't seen, but I think I've made about three cents in ASCAP from that movie, but <laughs> anyway, it's nice to say I had a, a, a wrote a song that ended up in a movie, and I told my dad that, told Andre, I didn't tell him that it, you know, <laughs> it wasn't a huge movie, but it was nice to be able to say, yeah, of I course. wrote a song that was in a movie. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and you've played on on singles and on CDs, and you you um, appeared on the Tonight Show and and um, multiple bands that that you've been a part of. So you certainly have had a, a varied musical career. 
Yes, that's true. Oh, yeah, that the Tonight Show was fun. I was with this band called The Cages, a couple of guys from Alabama, and um, I met James Woods there. Oh, yeah. I, it's funny because it was um, it was the Jay Leno version of the Tonight Show, of course, and um, it was really fun doing it. And then you know, I I've met so many celebrities, and it's not like I don't care or I don't get excited, but I I leave them alone because I know everyone. You know, when my dad was married to Mia Farrow, we were walking. When I first met her, I was probably like 11. We were walking along the streets of New York, and I saw people realize who she was, and they started to freak out. So mm-hmm. I remember once shoving her in a doorway, so they, you know, so they lost her. But, you know, there was James Woods, and I thought, you know what, I'm not going to bother him. And he actually came over and introduced himself to me. So that was kind of nice. But, you know, I guess I guess he likes violins. I don't know. <laughs> Well, it's one thing to to have a a process related to composing. It's another thing to have a process related to performing. So when you're on a stage that that you know is going to yield millions of people watching you, what what's your performance process like? Oh, I want them to see what a good time I'm having. People always okay. say I smile all the time, and I don't even know it. But I think a lot of people have told me over the years that you look like you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, what you're mm-hmm. meant to be doing. And, you know, I've always had, I guess, a choleric temperament. I've, I've never been afraid to perform. I mean, when I sing, I think I feel more vulnerable um, than when I play the violin. I, I've just over the years, I got more and more confident. And people would say things that, like my mother wouldn't say to me about what it does to them and how it makes them feel. And and uh, how, you know, I played in a lot of church bands and they say I take them to heaven or mm-hmm. they hear my violin lines long after they left the building or, you know, just amazing things. Or, you know, when I was young and doing all of this touring, they didn't have the Internet and people weren't recording things on their phones. So it's funny because I don't know, but I would venture to say I was one of the first that ever danced while I played violin. Hmm. Not that anybody would know that, and it's okay. I'm so glad when I see violinists that do that. Mm-hmm. And but I, my whole thing when I get to a place where we were going to perform, we did a three month tour of Europe with this one band that had number ones in in, in Ireland and and in Europe that I played with in Ireland. And um, when we were on the tour, I had a thirty foot cord, and again before wireless instruments I think and I would get to the venue and I would see how far my cord would reach if I could find a big pedestal or a high up place mm-hmm. so that I knew I had a couple of solos and I I know that when I got to the solo I would head up there and that's where I do it and I knew that I mm. how far I could go so you know I just always tried to make it a performance and and pour all the passion out that I have in what I do um, that's I, I really do know that I was meant to do this and um, I'm glad that I've got to do it as much as I have. And I'm looking forward to doing it a lot more. That's great. And you're writing a book too. It, is that about your, your career? Is it a, is it a book looking back retrospectively at what you've done so far or is it um, something else in nature? It's a lot of things. Uh, you know, I've been told over the years that I sh- they should do a documentary on me or I should write a book because I've done so much of my life, so many things that, you know, this from the sublime to the ridiculous, because, you know, I grew up without a father and my mother had a career and she was trying to get remarried and I was alone a lot. And so, you know, I tried to find my way without the guidance that I normally have. I love my parents, but, you know, they're musicians, they're performers, 
you know, we don't come with a set of instructions, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I, I ventured out and tried all kinds of things when I was younger. A lot of people do. And I learned a lot of great things. But, uh, you know, some of it has shocked people. Some of it I've given talks about it to especially uh, moms that have kids, you know, like you really have to watch your kids and find out what they're doing. Don't just let them try and raise themselves, you know, because you can get yourself in trouble. So I've, I've had some very interesting things happen in my life that people think I should write about. And so, you know, I've made some timelines. Um, I'll probably want to get somebody to help me craft it because there's just so much, mm-hmm. so many different aspects to it. But I've had people say, you know, you should write about the fact that you're, you grew up without a father or you should write about, you know, different things that I've had to deal with. I know I'm not alone, but I know there's always, I mean, then I write children's books. So that's mm-hmm. another thing. I've written three children's books about mainly about the love of the earth and soil and where your food comes from, about bees and earthworms and the desert animals and how they're threatened by a lot of things. And my next one's going to be about kids that have to move because of military or divorce. So, um, you know, I'm, it's funny. I never thought I'd be a teacher or write anything, um, but I ended up getting my AA and child development and teaching preschool and first grade a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then when I discovered there was politics in that, I really had to get out because there's politics in every job. But when you're dealing with families, it's more heartbreaking, you know, and stuff. So, um, but yeah, so I started writing a song about, I wrote a song about earthworms because I worked with a master gardener from when the time I was a teenager and I love gardening and farming and all that kind of stuff. So I wrote this song about earthworms and my son heard it a lot when he was growing up. And then one day somebody offered me to go in the studio and, and actually record it and produce it. And, and then I looked at the lyrics and realized I had enough information about earthworms, you know, nonfiction type thing to write a book. And then I did the illustrations and that's where it started, you know? So, um, and, and the one about bees, I have a video and a song called give bees a chance. So I'm looking right at it. Yeah, so I, so yeah, I've tried a few different things, and then my the desert book was considered quote unquote controversial because I suddenly realized that you know the desert that we have here, the Mojave and the California Nevada deserts, were being scraped, and millions of acres of solar panels were being put there, and so they were not only destroying the desert, which is actually a beautiful place, and people get this attitude like there's nothing there, but it's teeming with life and botany and you know everything else so then then the the tortoises were dying and birds are flying into the wind things and they're flying into the the mirrors of the solar and dying and i'm just thinking you know to me that's not truly sustainable so you know our future kids should be able to look at this a better way than maybe we did and so you know the animals have a meeting and then you know the tortoise is called the teacher in Native American. I also met some Native Americans who their sacred sites and burial sites are also being scraped away and damaged. So the combination, I used the combination of those two and the animals going to the, the, the Indian guy and, or the Native American guy and asking for help of how to save the desert and save them. So, you know, I just, and then in the back, I always have a practical application. So the earthworm one teaches you how to build a little worm box where you can take your scraps from the kitchen and, and feed them to the worms and then use their castings for your garden. And then the desert one, I talk about saving energy 
And then the B one has to do with a, I got commissioned by a guy that makes wonderful products that are being used all around the world that make you not have to use the chemicals and it's putting the friendly bacteria back in the soil. So it's making the plants much healthier and even with more nutrition and more flavor. So that helps the bees. And the desert book is called The Strange Disappearance of Walter Tortoise. Yes, that's what. Did you do the illustrations for that book as well? I did, I did all the illustrations. I, I actually had a friend and he and I went out to the desert to the same kind of area. And I had in mind the different scenes for the book. So we took a load of photographs. And then it was really fun that my son, my, my sister, who does graphic art, um, she's credited on the book, uh, Claudia Previn, but she helped me Show, showed me in Photoshop how you make the two layers. There's the animals in the actual desert. So it's a mixed media thing. So I just was thrilling. And then we added some shadow to make them look like they're actually there. So yeah, each book is different. And it's funny because I learned something about the publishing business that most children's publishers have their artists that do all of their books. So they have a similar look. And then they have people that write. And now I was trying to present my books as being both. And I realized that that's not okay that they don't, they don't go for that. So, yeah, but I'm, I'm in touch with some other publishers and some other exciting things are happening now. And I might even do some animated versions of my books. So that would be, that's, you know, kids today, they won't even listen to an audiobook anymore, apparently. It has to be animated now. I mean, and that's just so funny. The irony of that is that, you know, partly reason why I wrote those books is I want I know as a gardener and a gardening teacher, even to little kids, how much they need to have that tactile experience and know that before screens, this is what soil is and this is how the best soil is made. And these little guys have only a mouth, they don't have eyes or ears, but they do something more wonderful than even what we can do. And, you know, I've had, when I've taught in schools, I'll bring a wheelbarrow full of compost and there's worms in there. And after I teach them about planning and what, then I'll say, okay, go find some worms. And I've had teachers come up, look at me, that kid won't even get their hands dirty, but they're in there digging for worms. And I just smile and I say, yeah, they really need this. <laughs> you know, they can't just sit at a desk and raise their hand all the time. You know, when I gardening in third grade, that just blew, that just opened it all up for me. I <laughs> fell in love with it right then. And I've heard some animals in the background as we've been talking. I've, I've heard some frogs. And I think that was a cow. So you're surrounded hopefully by animals since that's part of what you love about life. Oh, well, I wish they were real. The, the frogs are real though. I'm at my son's house and they have a pond outside. I know it drives my son crazy because they wake him up and he falls back to sleep. Uh -huh. And then they start with one little croak and then two, and then all of a sudden they're really loud. But yeah, I do have a phone and I use animal sounds for all oh. my alerts. A rooster text. I have a, a cow that's like a voicemail. I have a horse that's a reminder, horse Winnie. So yeah, some of them are not real, but I love them. I do. That's funny. Fact, it's funny how you fooled me. Well, you, you certainly have had such an interesting life thus far. And I know you're embarking on some new things that that'll probably just increase the the interest of, of things in your own life and then people's interest in, in you. But I, I did read the, the book that you had mentioned earlier about um, fa famous people's kids. Uh, and I was surprised to see that you had an experience that not a lot of people could relate to, um, having been a part of, of the source when you were a teen. 
Um, and I can't even imagine how that would have impacted you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wondering how, if you can anyway, because I'm, I'm sure it might be a challenge, but how, how could you just encapsulate the effect that it had on your music? I mean, was that a time when, when music was, was growing in you or was it stifled in you? I mean, such a, such a different thing to live through. Oh, actually, you know, it probably was the most freedom I ever had in music. And again, being very young, but when you're young, you think you could do anything. You you can reach the stars. So uh, when I was in that situation, um, because I needed to feel like I belonged to a group, I, I, like I said earlier, I was alone a lot. So, and no father, but that there were bands within that source and we had a rock band. It was like a folk rock band, I guess. And, the, and we really, we had people going out trying to get us record deals. Uh, I was so young. I was just singing and playing my violin and letting everyone do the business. I, I had nothing to do with that. And it wasn't done properly, perhaps. I don't know what the re- reason is, but we made a record. And recently somebody sent me a cassette copy of it, I think. And it was oh. amazing <laughs> to hear it again. <laughs> but nothing ever happened. excuse me, nothing ever ever happened with that. And then there was also another kind of a heavy rock band that was all improv. Um, I never really, I got to play with it, uh, with them a couple of times more recently and it was fun. But the father figure or the leader or the cult guy, whatever you want to call him. um, Yes, he was a father substitute for me for a while um, because there was no one else around and I, I needed that. Um, every little girl needs someone to tell them that they're beautiful, they're proud of them, they're good at something. And what he used to do all the time was uh, when we lived in this one little area in Hawaii called Lanikai and it's a loop road and it's uh, white sand, turquoise water, very shallow like a, a reef out there. And we lived in this house that was way up high and it had a big deck around it. And he used to say, why don't you just go outside and play your violin, play whatever you want, just go for it. And I would literally wander around outside and just play whatever, no particular songs, just make it up. And uh, that was just, that I think probably had a huge influence on why I love to just pure improvisation, just without any real thought about anything and I'm sure it has classical and Irish and other kind of overtones and sometimes gypsy. And recently I started playing with a a bunch that were kind of Russian, French and um, Ukrainian. And they played some traditional songs, traditional songs. And I mean, there was a gypsy thing that came out of me. I didn't even know I had. So I think it goes back to the Eastern European side of my, my family because all what I consider the greatest uh, classical violin soloists have all been Eastern European. I'm Isaac Stern and, you know, all these guys. It's funny how that is. But um, I was told in that then to just go out and play. And then one of the ladies, again, never had touched one in her life, but she got a harp. And they recorded a lot of it. I haven't heard any of the recordings. Somebody has them somewhere. <laughs> and I'm sure some of it is atonal. Who knows? Because she didn't really know what she was doing. She's just playing the harp by feel, doesn't know what she's doing. And I would play along with her. And I also played uh, with somebody from those days who was a dancer. And we were actually on the gong show in 1977. 
<laughs> the old Don show brings back a lot of memories. And I have to tell you one story. Chuck Barris is a, was a crazy wild guy, but I wore a top hat, um, a leotard with fishnets and, and cowboy boots with big silver stars on them. <laughs> and I used a, a wah-wah, like an echo pedal. And um, she wore this kind of off-the-shoulder panay velvet red thing with these feathers and tucked down the front, very exotic looking shapely girl. And she danced and I would play the violin and I would make these crazy sounds with the delays or whatever. And I'd come up with these melodies and we would play off each other. And so she would twirl and I'd do a trill or, you know, I'd do something and she'd dance off of that. And so we had this little synergy thing that we did. And we uh, went on the gong show. It's funny because they all looked at each other. They'd never heard anything like that before. <laughs> and she would, she rides around and then she pulled these feathers out and threw them in the air and they looked at each other and they kind of shrugged and they gonged us. Oh and no. <laughs> so we started to walk back there and Chuck Barris came running up. No, 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 don't leave. Cause you might've won the weirdest act of the week. And I'm like, what is that? <laughs> so we did, we actually, in fact, one year I tried to look it up on YouTube thinking, Hey, you know, maybe it's there. I never found the actual performance, but I found the one at the end of the week where they said, you know, they bring everybody on and they say, and here's the weirdest stuff of the week. And, you know, they showed a, a quick clip of us. So I never did find the full one, but hmm. um, it was kind of fun. But yeah, that was something else I did. And then we actually wrote some songs based on those melodies. We went on a tour, went to uh, Florida and New York. We performed, performed in CBGB and we did some private performances and um, the gay community loved us because back then in the, in the late seventies, we were these very expressive women. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess they really loved that about us, but you know, we, we had quite a fun time in New York playing in all these little cool clubs that probably most of them are gone now. I think CBGB is finally gone or maybe it isn't, but that was such an amazing place. Uh, so many great artists played there. And then, yeah, we went back to Hawaii. We wrote some songs and we wrote an album. And again, I don't have a copy of that album, but it would be very interesting to hear now because all those things that I wrote improvisationally, she took and wrote actual songs out of them. Mm. I don't remember any of them really, but so yeah, that, that was actually a really good experience, um, kind of almost an out-of-body experience for me as far as music goes. Is that part of what you talk to parents about because of your experience as a, as a teen? Is When you're saying to parents you need to know what they're doing and, and, yeah. and be involved in their lives, is, is that part of what you're sharing? I think that's, that was their take of it. Uh, I mean, I was told that I was supposed to share this in front of this body of women and I wrote a lot of notes and I told them a little bit about my childhood and my teens and, and how I went through that. And, um, people react different ways to it, you know, sure. but, um, I think most of the women felt like they better keep a better eye on their kids, especially their girls. Cause you know, it's, it was a completely, we thought we were part of the age of Aquarius and, you know, right. Uh, just a different lifestyle, very different. Uh, we lived together in a kind of community. There were families within the family, but back then there wasn't much of a good relationship as far as, you know, most of the cults around in those days were very destructive or, or scary or murderers or all killed themselves or whatever. So, you know, yeah. th there wasn't a positive one. We got persecuted a lot, you know, and mm -hmm. we were just trying to live our lives away from everyone else and do our thing 
but it was scary to most people. Um, I learned a lot of really practical things. I mean, he was a nutritionist. He had very successful restaurants. He was a judo champion. I mean, he, there were a lot of good things about uh, the, the leader's character, um, even though he went off on some aspects. Um, but uh, I showed, I finally got to show the documentary to my son and mm. I think it helped him because he grew up with a mom that has had these interesting experiences. And I think he understood a lot more about who I am after seeing mm. that. I'm sure it was an important moment in your relationship with your son because you're sharing a part of your life that I don't think would be understood by most people, let alone someone um, who's looked up to you and you've raised. So yes. I, I imagine that would have been a really important moment. It was, and I was surprised at his reaction, very happily surprised that mm. you know he, he hugged me and he, he, he just felt like he really understood me a lot better. And uh, yeah, I mean, I know for parents it's a nightmare, but every child has to have their time when they separate from their parents because they're becoming their own identity and they have to kind of push you away. And that's natural. Um, they have a whole rituals about the rites of passage for men in the ancient civilizations. And, you know, for women, we get our time of the month and that's what we know. But, but, you know, the, the thing about it is, is that uh, you can give them all the best of everything. And, and uh, I, I was always told, when my son left that uh, the tapes are running. That was always very encouraging to me. I'd say, mm. they, you know, but I told him this and I tried to train him in that and I gave him this and I showed him this and why doesn't he follow how I'm, you know, outgoing and I work hard and I do this. And, and um, they said, you know what, when they leave, the tapes are running. And I thought, okay. And I held that close to my heart and, and man, despite me, he turned out a wonderful person. <laughs> we have the most beautiful adult relationship. I just, I can oh. talk about anything. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm glad. I'm glad. And he's very musically talented. I think he has way more than I have. Oh, is that right? Yeah. But he's devoted to the art side and I've done the art side and the commercial side. So it's my career. So I have to make money at it too. Well, I hope people will look into your music and to your book when it's out and, um, and to come hear you play. I've actually had the pleasure of, of seeing you play. Oh. Um, I don't remember what year and I don't even remember the name of, of the building, <laughs> but you were, <laughs> you were with a band. What okay. I do remember was, um, I actually do remember that you danced while you, while you played the violin. Um, okay. and you were introduced as somebody who did that, that I, I recall that quite, quite clearly now. Um, and I remember the smile on my face, just thinking, well, that is a lot of freedom up on stage. <laughs> But I don't remember much more about it than that. <laughs> it might have been the Young Dubliners then? Possibly. Okay. Because I yeah. did a lot of performing with them. And yeah, I always had get up on the bar and crawl along and play for people. And <laughs> yeah, I, I really, they, there were poke marks in the ceiling above my spot because I was <laughs> dancing all night and my bow would poke the ceiling. Yeah, oh, that's great. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. I'd like to just shift and ask you some questions that I ask everyone, if, if that's okay with you. Let's go for it. Okay. Um, so Alicia, what in life are you still curious about? Hmm, still curious about. Okay. Wow, why is that a hard one for me? Um, <laughs> people. I've just always been curious about people. I love people. I love watching people. I'm curious about what makes them sad, happy, you know, what touches them. I guess I'll just always be curious about that because over my lifetime and my career, I've had 
so many people come up to me and say things like I said before about my playing. So uh, the fact that art and music and things really touch people and change people, that that's always fascinating to me. Mm. And which is more distracting to you as a performer? Is it is it the praise that you receive for your talent or is it the criticism that you might receive? Oh, criticism, definitely. Uh, there was a funny thing that happened to me once with a, a magazine in England. We were, I was in a band and we were Irish and we played in England and we were put, put in this heavy metal magazine, which we shouldn't have even been in there. And when I read this person's other writings, I could tell that even if it was a Mozart concerto, they just hate violins and they hate Irish people. So oh. they put this beautiful, we were on our way to America to do a tour and they put this beautiful picture of me on the front page, I think, or on like a full picture. And I looked at it and the title was The Worst Violin in Rock History. You know, I bet he couldn't even name five rock violinists someone, you know, even if you asked him. Right. It just, it was just, it was, I don't know why he wrote it. And I mean, here I am revealing this, but you know, I'm just, I'm being real, real talk here. So, uh, <laughs> but that just about destroyed me on the plane over to America. I was crying. I just couldn't believe it. How could he say mm -hmm. that? Um, and then, you know, the more I talk about, about it inside myself and to others, I just realized it was his narrow thought sure. and it hadn't it, what didn't really have anything to do with reality because i know i'd put out a good performance that night and being the child of the parents i'm in i'm extremely critical of myself i'm i'm mm. terrible i every flaw i can't even listen mm. to some recordings sometimes because i hear every flaw and everyone thinks it's great and i'm mm. just i've got that fine tuning that i have genetically i guess so very overcritical of myself so there's a perfectionistic side to you Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yet I love to get down and, you know, play funky and dirty and everything like that <laughs> as well. But, but yeah, when it, violin is, I sometimes tell people it's like a love hate relationship. Sure. Because I love to play it, but it's so dang hard mm -hmm. and you can never just kind of relax and play it. You have mm -hmm. to constantly be concerned about your intonation and your tone and your bowing. It's no wonder it's called the most difficult instrument. One of, only a couple, so. Right, and then having been classically trained, you have that, that component to it as well, where uh, there's a, a seeding of perfection in, oh, in yeah. that genre, yeah. Yeah, and in fact, that's one of the reasons why I decided, you know, it's okay that I'm not gonna play classical music, because the thing that, I, I was 11 years old, and I met one of the wonderful young Korean, I think she was Korean or South, South Korean uh, violinist that my pop discovered, and I went to a concert and afterwards I was like 11 years old and I was talking to her about what she did. And she said, well, you know, I'd really love to have a family. And I said, well, why can't you? She said, well, because I practiced eight to 12 hours a day and I'm always on tour. Something in my heart broke there. Mm -hmm. And I went, I don't want that life. If that's what it takes. And then I learned, cause my teacher, um, wonderful lady, played with Yasha Heifetz, who was considered the greatest violinist who ever lived. Mm. And she wanted me to play for him. Now, I know because of who she was that she wouldn't have suggested that if she didn't think I had talent. Of However, course. I was terrified. It never actually happened. 
Joshua Bell played for him. There's some videos out there where you can see it, but it never actually happened. But later on in life, I learned, and this shows you how super critical and, and you know, especially having a pop who I had is if you played for him and you weren't what he considered an absolute genius, you know what he did? Pointed at the door and said, get out. Can you imagine Could how that would crush you? So I'm glad that never happened, but you know, yeah. There's just all these little things that 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 uh, I've dealt with. But at a certain point, I thought, well, okay, why at 13, I thought I started to learn all the big classical pieces that every violinist plays. I said, wait a minute, why do we all have to go down this same path? Mm -hmm. And why, since these composers are all gone now, I noticed that you'll perform it and then the critics tell you whether they think that you interpreted yeah. it right. Well, who the heck yeah. do they know? What? That's their opinion. So I just thought this is just too twisted. This just seems something wrong here to me. It seems something wrong. Like if you could play something with a composer who's alive, who tells you how he wants it interpreted, but no, I don't want anybody, everybody tearing you down because they don't think you, you did that right. And that person isn't even you understand what I'm saying. I do. It's similar to a, a classically trained ballerina who has to dance the piece precisely as it was intended to be danced with, with including every fine movement um, and positions of, of her hands, his or her hands. Um, yes. And a lot of dancers who gravitate away from that because it, it's, it's just too much precision and a demand for perfection that can sometimes suck the life out of, of someone's relationship with music and with dance. So they, they choose a different genre of dance. Yes. Actually I did do some improv with a ballerina and she wore her toe shoes and everything. It was at a church, mm -hmm. a Malibu. Um, I forget which church, but yeah, we met and we had both been classically trained and we both had straight away. And we went into this room for about an hour and just tried stuff out. And we did two, two performances in two different church services. And it was amazing. I'm sorry. I couldn't mm -hmm. have kept going, but we both had that same turn that we took um, after all of that. And um, you know, the other thing I've found with so much classical violin concerto music, that type of music, it seems to me because I know what it takes to do that, that it just seems like it's overly hard. And I, mm -hmm. I feel like I lose the beauty. And I met another a cellist who told me that, he agreed with me. He said, when you go to a classical concert, you're wowed by the technique and the ability and you leave and you don't remember a dang thing. But he felt like the music that I play, it, it actually, you know, it touches people. And that's, what's interesting. One of the jazz bands I'm in, a lot of people, I think, think of jazz as untouchable. Like it's over there. It's too difficult. I don't understand it. And um, it, it almost becomes background music. And so the guy that hired me to be in his band, could tell that I wasn't your typical trained jazz player, but we're also choosing songs, say from the sixties and stuff that are really cool and easy to digest, let me say. And we stretch out the intros and we stretch out the endings and we kind of, and, and we're finding that people are entering into it better and, and they're enjoying mm -hmm. it and they're actually getting more involved because it doesn't seem so untouchable, just like classical music. It's amazing and I love it and it's incredible, but I felt, a lot of the violin stuff is just so hard that all I can think of when I'm listening to it is what it took, how much practicing and what it took for them <laughs> to have to do instead of this is a beautiful piece. And, and that's why it's so important for every performer to define success 
for themselves because mm-hmm. what might be success for one person in who who writes singles uh, in the music industry, yeah. um, it might look very different for someone who wants to be an indie artist. Um, and similarly, in, in different performance genres outside of music, I think it's important to define your own motivation and your own your own success. Yeah, definitely. I have mean, met violinists who want to take on the hardest piece they can. Okay, mm-hmm. you go for it. Well, as a performer, you obviously prepare for every every time that you play, yet the unexpected can happen. What is something unexpected that has happened to you when you're performing? Hmm. Well, things like playing stuff I didn't even know I knew how to play. It's almost like someone else is holding the instrument and I'm just an observer. There have been times when that's happened quite often. Wow. And, and it, yeah, it's it's amazing. It just, I or or you know, it's a, a genre or something I haven't tried and I know what to do or I, I hear mm-hmm. what I should do and my fingers do it. And I didn't know I could. That that must be an amazing feeling. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, I don't use this word very often, but it's awesome. <laughs> I, I imagine. What a, what a great experience to have, but it also speaks to how well trained and how experienced you are because I'm sure that lends itself more to you being able to adapt like that. Well, the other funny thing is that I'm left-handed and there were no left-handed teachers when I was growing up. And so bowing has always been more difficult. And again, when it comes to classical, there's a lot of very technical bowing, which would have taken a lot longer for me to, to master. But I feel so in touch with my left hand when it comes to melodies and, and, mm. and my heart directly, my mind and my heart being able to express what I want to, because that's my dominant hand. And that's, I felt like that's a good thing. I, I've tried to play, I guess somebody had a, a P bass, which is my favorite kind of bass, but it was left-handed and I thought, oh great. And I picked it up and my right hand just couldn't make notes. It just was not, I'm sure if I lost, if I, I had to, you know, you hear of people who lose ability of a hand and then they have to make the other hand work. But yeah, I just thought, no, I'm, I play right-handed. Just. <laughs> well, I've already asked you about the criticism or the praise and you mentioned a headline that's stuck with you. Um, So it it may or may not be the same answer to this question, but what is one comment that you've received that still stands out to you because of its impact? That could be good, bad, or for whatever reason. Uh, Well, I've had some magazines and newspapers say that I live up to my dad's name, Mm. even though I I don't do what he does. But my mother used to say, you know what, Mm -hmm. you may not like what she does, but she's good at what she does. So when they said that in a couple of articles about, you know, Vanity Fair, I think was one or one of those kind of magazines. It's been said a couple of times and that definitely helped my confidence because I never really had any of the mm-hmm. support from my pop. I had it from my stepdad, Mundell. Mm-hmm. He was very supportive and he loved violins or fiddles or whatever. But um, I never mm-hmm. felt like my dad appreciated. And like, why was I still doing music? Because I, to him, old school, you know, if you're good, you're successful. And I tried to explain him one day. I remember saying, you know, <clears throat> what if there was this young man in somewhere in a tiny village in Spain who became great at classical guitar? Oh, he'd be discovered. How, Dad? By whom? Mm. And he, he just didn't get it. And I tried to say, look, look at how many of the sons and daughters of famous actors and musicians are now doing right. it. That's either because they were in the right place at the right time, they were introduced to the right people, or you know, that's how it works. And, and 
that's the interesting thing about my life is that everything I've achieved and, you know, you could say it isn't much, but for a lot of the people I know, they say, wow, you know, I wish I could have done what you've done. I've done it all on my own, just going out with my violin mm -hmm. and being willing to just get it out and play with anyone and everyone. Oh, good for you. You know, if I don't take it, that's when people tend to ask me to play. <laughs> so you kind of try and take it everywhere. Well, that, what a thing to pre I think that's a tremendous thing to be proud of about yourself that you not only found your own way in music, but you defined, you defined success for yourself. And yet you, you received the kind of feedback that you just mentioned. So I'm sure that's a lot to be proud of yourself. Yes. Thank you. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I'm still ready to go off and tour and do everything some more. Oh, but, good. Yeah. That's great. Well, in contrast, how do you move on from failure? Mm, well, you try and fix it. Okay. There was one situation where something happened like that to me and it never happened to me before in a studio. And so I went back and um, I worked extra hard and wrote out a part. I tried to just go in and wing something and uh, I wrote it all out. And even though they ended up getting a cellist who had a friend who played violin. And so they just went in and did it. I was supposed to come back and do it. Um, it wasn't a huge record, but it was just like some friends of mine and I wanted to do it. And they didn't tell me it was in like six sharps or six flats mm -hmm. or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And it meant from major to minor and all this other mm -hmm. stuff. So I heard the song and I understood the song, but um, I wrote out the part and I even sent it to them. And even though they said they got somebody else, I felt better that I did the work and I got it done and I, I could have done it. So that was one way um, I, I fixed that. But failure, you know, we fail, but I don't like the idea of failure. So, right. um, I mean, I've had people throughout my life say, you should be playing your violin all over the world. And, you know, and in some ways I have, um, but I still want to, and I still believe that's what I meant to do and I will. So I, I try not to, that the words fail and failure kind of feel like a, a weight or a putting a period on something. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't ever want to do that. It's like people who say they never want to grow up, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just, the one beauty of, of um, being a musician is that you never have to stop. You know, mm. you may not look as, as good as you did when you were in your twenties, but <laughs> But they're praising, you know, a certain person that did a performance at the Super Bowl because she's 50, you know. I, I mean, at 50, I was still doing that and more. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's great. 50 is the new 30, right? <laughs> well, I'm almost finished, but just a couple more questions. Okay. Uh, have you ever had what you would say was a transformative moment in your work? And if so, what was it? Let's see, I'm sure I've had many, but I think most significantly would be when I've played in these uh, played for church praise bands, you know, um, and you're worshiping and praising God, you know, that's what you're doing. And when I do that, you know, there's some people that can play it like it's a job, but for me, partly because I don't have to think about chords necessarily. I mean, I do inherently because I'm playing a song that I know pretty well, or I, I can look at the chords, but uh, there've definitely been times when I've had my eyes closed and I'm playing something 
and I feel like the ceiling opened up and, you know, there's angels coming up and down or something, you know, like light streaming in or that I'm connected. I'm totally connected. And uh, mm. once you have a taste of that, it's, it's really something. And that's why before I perform, I always hope and pray, often pray even that I'm going to hear the music that I'm supposed to be playing. I'm going to hear the notes before, right as I'm playing them. And hopefully my fingers will be able to do what I'm hearing. Mm. Oh, that's a beautiful sentiment. That's the ultimate for me. That is what I mm. think I'm supposed to be doing. And that's why I try and keep myself out of getting in the way of it, of that. Mm. That's, that's a beautiful sentiment. Well, Alicia, in, in brief, um, you can try to keep it to 30 seconds or less if possible, but most sure. people can't. Um, <laughs> but what have you learned about yourself in your particular relationship with music? That I will always work at it, that I, I'm not perfect, that I have a certain thing that I do well, and I don't have to try and be everything. Mm. Oh, that's great. What a wonderful lesson to have learned. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I used to feel bad about it, but nope. I, I, if I didn't have all the things that people have said, I probably would have given up. Mm. That, that's another thing that I've said a few times in my life. It's like, okay, I guess I am supposed to do this because people seem to really like it. Well, I hope people will discover more of your work and um, I'll look forward to hearing more about your book and, and your new album coming out. Um, but I want, really want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to have this conversation. I really appreciate it. And I, I hope that others just get a feel for the breadth of not only your musical knowledge and experience, but your creativity. So thank you again for speaking with me today. Thank you, Sari. Thank you, doctor. I appreciate you and um, having this and I'm excited to see uh, what it's going to sound like when it's all finished. Thanks. All right. This has been Manage the Moment with Dr. Shep. Life is a collection of moments. It's how you manage the moments that makes the difference. You can subscribe to the Manage the Moment podcast for free just by clicking the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this podcast. And then you'll be sure to get the newest episodes as soon as they're uploaded. And for more information about the Manage the Moment podcast, you can see the episode notes for this broadcast. And you'll also find us on social media. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Shep. Thanks so much for listening and taking the time to share these moments with us. Until next time. <laughs>